So we just recently held the Talking Health Tech Winter Summit 2023, which was our ninth virtual summit that we've held for our members. These THT virtual summits bring together the health tech ecosystem to learn and connect about all the real issues that are shaping healthcare today. Now our THT Plus members can go back and watch any of the sessions from the Winter Summit just passed, but I'm excited to share another session from the Talking Health Tech Winter Summit that we just held on this podcast right now. So hopefully this gives you a good taste of what's on offer with our THT Plus membership, because if you enjoy this podcast and you're keen for even more, then I think THT Plus membership is a great fit for you. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash THT Plus to learn more about that. Now, our next THT Virtual Summit is happening in November, so make sure you have your membership squared away before then. We're also taking expressions of interest soon for what we'll be talking about at that event. So make sure you're subscribed to our newsletter so you can be the first to find out when applications open up. But remember also our THT Plus members get first preference for all applications. Right now though, here's a session taken from the Talking Health Tech Winter Summit 2023. Collaboration starts with a conversation, Team Health Tech. Let's make it happen. This is Talking Health Tech with me, Peter Birch, featuring content and community about technology in healthcare. Between now and the end of June, we're conducting the 2024 Talking Health Tech Audience Survey. This helps us prioritize content, hone in key messages, and refine the show to make it even better. We also want to understand who the biggest cohorts of our audience are. So I'd love for you to take five or ten minutes to have your say and complete the survey. Everyone who completes it goes in the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of THT Plus membership credits to put towards a membership for yourself as an individual, or to help get the word out about your company. The link to complete the survey is in the show notes of this episode, or just go to talkinghealthtech.com survey. Specialized areas in general practice like women's health, travel clinics, and rural health are evolving, and they need tailored digital health solutions. How are technology providers adapting their offerings to support the specific and dynamic needs of these specialized healthcare sectors. This is session one of the Talking Health Tech Winter Summit on the rise of specialty GP clinics and their changing digital health needs. I'll be on this panel alongside Dr. Talat Upar, Director of Women's Health Road, Dr. Adam Moody, GP at Skin Integrity, Skin Cancer and Cosmetic Clinic, and moderating the panel, Jessica White. Head of Commercial and Government at Best Practice Software. Prior to this session, we ran a poll which asked, what should technology vendors focus on most for specialty GP clinics? 40% of you said optimizing workflow was most important. 35% said interoperability. 14% said insight and analytics. And 10% said data security and privacy. Let's dive into these a little bit more and start the session. Alrighty, so we've got everyone here in the chat. We might need to do something clever with Jess's audio one on the side there, but we'll work it out. And actually, I shouldn't be over here in the moderator section. Let's switch that over because this is the first Talking Health Tech Summit where I'm sitting on a panel. So I'm going to hand over to Jess to run the show. Thanks so much. Excellent. Hey, thanks, Pete. Looking forward to grilling you today. I think I've got the easy job here. Well, look, thank you everyone for joining us this morning. We're super excited to be here to talk about the rise of specialty general practice clinics in the general practice space. And I have some amazing guests joining me today, which is really exciting. Look, we're here today to discuss the rise of specialty general practice clinics. 
to start with, we'd love to hear more about your specific clinics, what makes them different, and why do you think specialty clinics are becoming more popular, more of a thing? Why are we kind of moving away from the really generic GP space into these kind of specialties? So, look, I know we've got a lot to talk about in this space. I know Pete's got a fantastic background in this area as well. So let's start with Adam. Let's get your input into this. Why the rise of specialty practices? Where do you work? What do you do? What makes you different? And what have you seen happen in this arena lately? Oh, thanks. Yes. So we'll start with why. I think the specialty arena allows us to focus on the stuff we enjoy. So if you've got a particular interest, it allows you to pursue that interest. And I think also the more you do a particular skill set, you get better at it. And so in the context of me doing skin cancer, historically, prior doing mainstream GP, you do maybe a couple of skin checks a day if you're lucky versus say doing 30 a day, you get very good at it. And particularly with skin cancer, a lot of it's pattern recognition. And if your brain is not being tuned up every single consultation, you're pretty easy to actually miss something quite significant. So I think it's really important for some of the people that, you know, some of those health areas. My work in Aboriginal health, that's so quite unique within Aboriginal community controlled health organisations is in the organisations I've worked with in the past five years, there's 27 different teams. So the GP and nurses are just one team, just one small component of the service. So if you've got a patient file open in front of you, you've got 27 different teams entering data into a single person's file. It can make it pretty tricky when you're trying to navigate through the data and looking at what my focus is, which is the medical side versus the other parts of the organization have different requirements and different needs, and they're not focused on medical necessarily. And then in the later time, I've joined the hospital uh, as well as a GP staff specialist in the hospital in the home of my local health district. And that's enabled me to bring this community side of medicine to face the hospital side of medicine. That is that fusion of hospital and community-based medicine. And I think that's enabled me to cover a bit of niche out in areas I'm interested in. And I think the other aspect of Aboriginal health you mentioned was it's a massive health disparity for me. It's a bit of a passion project to improve health outcomes for a very needy group. That's super interesting. I mean, to hear that there's 27 providers potentially involved in one person's care, to hear that being able to specialize something allows you to refine your skills and really become passionate and interested in a particular area makes complete sense. And I think those are really great examples around why we are seeing these specialist clinics evolve. And you've given two fantastic examples being skin cancer clinics and obviously Indigenous healthcare. And, you know, as technology vendors, these are the types of things that we really need to be learning about and understanding more about how do we implement a product that really assists those workflows, 27 providers to one patient. That's very different to a doctor seeing a patient for a cold or flu. So, no, Adam, you've answered my question perfectly. I might actually move on to Talat, if that's okay. I would love to hear more about your women's health clinic why you did it, why you're passionate about it, and what makes your service so different. Thank you so much, Jeff, for the time today and for such a wonderful initiative. I embarked on this journey and called it the Women's Health Road because I appreciated that women are in actual health journey and their health needs change at different times of their lives. And we as health professionals need to have answers and services available for them with their changing health needs. I also am humble enough to realize that they, just like Adam mentioned, you do some things really well, but you may not be perfect at everything that you don't do a lot of. And so I felt, you know what, especially with greater awareness, for example, like in areas of prolapse, 
We know that these are very specialized areas now that within women's health that it's far better care to provide that skill set of someone who does more of this every day to be able to cater for the woman who has that particular clinical condition. So not only the longitudinal journey of women was important to me, but the breadth of what we offer was important and the recognition that one clinician, yes, typically we've had those what I might call um, dinosaur old-fashioned models where you have one person saying they're good at everything. But we know that generally speaking, it's better to match your passion to where your interest is and also to be, again, that honesty to say, look, hey, for this particular part of your journey, somebody is very interested in fertility. We have that person next door. I prefer you see that person because you will get a better clinical experience from their skill set. So those two fundamental concepts of how do we provide care that's comprehensive but also longitudinal led me to create this model of care. And I've always been obsessed with general practitioner education side of things. So when I finished as a senior registrar, I was thinking, do I take on the midwifery package as a clinical educator? Do I focus on the ONG registrars? And then in my own opinion, I felt that GPs didn't have that much ownership in terms of particular person that I felt that there was a gap there that I could help with. And then I would like to give a shout out to our college, Ranskog, because it does offer quite an inclusive diploma program and advanced diploma program. And I thought, oh, this actually aligns really nicely with what my clinical educational interest is. And so then I did six months. I was a clinical co-coordinator of the exams for diploma. And that exposed me to the wonderful work that GP specialists do at the rural work whole phase, how much of the heavy lifting GPs do in general in metropolitan areas as well for women's health. And so I think I've just continued to embark on that journey. And so when I was setting up my own private practice, I thought we must have a GP specialist in the team because we can't be a true multidisciplinary model without that person. And so then I thought, um, how do I do this in a more structured way? And then I embarked on the RSC GP accreditation, which I believe, I'm happy to be corrected, but I believe I'm the only gynecologist in the country who has made that effort. So there are lots of really good medical centers that will invite gynecologists to come and have sessions in their team. So we know that's the common concept, but I'm sure that there are many in reverse where the gynecologist has said, hey, hang on, you know what? I really value primary care. We need to do it well and we need to do it in a structured way and have gone down that journey. So I have learned a lot in that process, Jess, and it has explored me to how to leverage technology in a multidisciplinary system to use it for our advantage. Graham, we've got plenty of technology questions coming your way. Don't you worry. Now, Pete, look, many of you, well, we've never probably been able to grill you before, but you have a very diverse background. You've worked in corporates, you've worked in startups, you've worked in health tech across Australia, across the world. You're an amazing creature. Let's put it that way. So what's been your experience, I guess, the last couple of years? How have you seen general practice change? How have you seen the rise of these specialty clinics come up? What type of clinics have you seen and what's your take on things? Yeah, sure. You pushed a little bit too far with the amazing creature, but I appreciate it. <laughs> You're right, though. All of my experience in healthcare technology revolved around this concept of specialty GP clinics. So when I look back, I've done stuff in occupational health, in doing a lot of pre-employments and periodicals and post-employments. And when someone hires somebody, they've got to fill out a big, long 
she, and then it's much more than just the paperwork that needs to be done there. There's a lot of health needs that you picked up there. I've done all my GP stuff, not being a clinician, running a lot of the operations and admin and logistics. For four or five years, I ran a group of travel medicine clinics. So doctors, nurses, and admin staff reporting up through to me and, and practice managers running their own P&Ls. Our EMR or our practice management system back then were manila folders with bits of paper and then those big compactus filing cabinets in the back that you could get crushed in, which is always fun. But also then more recently creating technology for skin cancer GP clinics, helping doctors diagnose skin cancer using AI and ML. And so what I found all throughout that journey is what I actually talk about on the podcast a lot too is Everything comes back to the workflow, in my opinion. And yes, we talk about interoperability and we've got a common enemy in that kind of concept. And once we get everything interoperable, everything will be sorted. Sometimes I feel like that's the conversation that we have and that's the goal. Yeah. You know what? If all the data connects to each other and it all flows seamlessly, that doesn't really fix much at all. Because in the end, we've still got squishy humans that come into clinics and have needs and humans need to deliver the healthcare as the GPs. And that's only one part of it. So what I've learned through all that journey is at the center of all of that is getting the workflow right and really understanding the people. And a lot of it is relationship management, I find as well. Yeah. And look, guys, one of the reasons we wanted to actually discuss this topic today is just that the typical general practice space and specialist space is just really changing Clinics are adapting, they're becoming more specialised, they're adapting to the needs of their patients, clinicians are adapting to current medicine trends and really as technology providers we need to really understand this, respond to it, be responsive and think about how we assist. That's probably going to help me lead on to my next question and I might start with Adam again is thinking about your specialty clinics, the fact that you work across two very complex environments, how has technology assisted your clinic? What have you found has really worked? What have you found hasn't worked? How did you find technology had to be dealt with differently because you weren't just following a standard GP consultation process? Let's start delving into the technology side of things. Thanks, Jess. It's a tricky answer. There's not a huge amount of workflow solutions that really achieve all the goals here. And along with Pete, I think workflow is the biggest hindrance to us making our jobs easy. In the skin cancer world, your focus could be potentially doing procedures every single consultation versus mainstream GP. You might just shuffle that on to the next day when you've got a vacant slot. So when it comes to technology, software in that, that respect doesn't really necessarily get, get my procedures done faster. What helps me is having a really slick workflow to get the patients moving to the procedure room or having all the equipment on hand. And me not being stuck at a desk to do my data entry for a skin consultation, most of my consults would be on standing up. Then in Aboriginal health, I might spend half an hour sifting through patient notes just to find a bit of information that should just be in front of me instantly. And so some of the software that I've worked with is able to do that and refines what data I can see. Big ticket items that have worked well for me when I worked in so the COVID clinic the health record, is, while some people aren't fans of it, massive favour for me. I had patients coming from Western Australia. Their thoughtful GP had put their health record onto the government portal. When they came to the respiratory clinic, I had all their health medication history, so I knew which antivirals they couldn't have because that GP in Western Australia put their health record online. That's been a big win. I think electronic prescribing is a massive win. Telehealth from the telephone perspective, fantastic. For the younger audience, video is fantastic. For the older audience, I found video probably hit and miss. One in five, one in six people 
just could not get their mobile phone to press the yes button on their screen. It was really hard to get those consults working. And sometimes taking five or 10 minutes to get an older person on a phone call, the console's 15 minutes long and I've chewed up most of it trying to get a phone call running. Yeah. So there are, I know there's solutions out there. So my own GP has a virtual waiting room, but that's not widespread. My endocrinologist at North Shore Hospital has a virtual waiting room. But again, that stuff's not ubiquitous across the whole health sector. I think there's a, a clinic dependent experience of technology that probably needs to be delved in deeper. And some of those solutions are very expensive to go and roll out on a single clinic basis. Yeah. And I think Pete touched on this before. It's fantastic to have all this technology and all these software solutions and all these providers out there, but really it comes back to your workflow within the clinic. And that's not necessarily just about technology. As you even said, Adam, I stand when I do things, I'm doing skin checks, I'm doing excisions. I really would like someone to be there recording my notes for me. That would be the ideal situation. And really, there are all these products, but how do I select the right one? How do I know what works for me? Is it going to align with my workflow processes? How expensive is it? What's out there? How do I know what's out there? So it becomes really tricky. So I'll hand to you, thinking about your practice and how different it is. Is there any technology that you have adopted that has seen you become more efficient or deliver better health outcomes or better healthcare to your patients? What have you seen work and what challenges do you still face? Yeah, good question. So basically, I like to divide it into what helps and empowers the women that we serve, what helps the clinicians, and what are the barriers that we are managing, and also how our reception and admin team empowered to do good quality work. So they're not caught up in the mundane side because we're very lucky to have reception staff that are so talented that I really don't want them doing repetitive, very mundane tasks, anything the computer can do. So I guess if we're starting with the patient, we do have a software that allows us to have a patient portal. Now, I've been lying if I said it works perfectly every time, but for the most part, we do get good feedback from patients. And so it's interesting that when I was starting in my journey, I had a few mentors and I did ask them, like, how do we do this? And they thought, turn it off because that's just a waste of time. And I thought, okay, and I did that. And then it was my second phase of life. Friends start with then, look, all these things you're trying to do, we actually have that capability. Why don't we turn it on and try? And this is very early when we set up our piece. And we've not regretted that at all. It is not purpose-built. So the challenge we have around that is, for example, I want to send a questionnaire. I do not want a two-finger type that you had an appendectomy in 1994. All of that information needs to be in my electronic file before I even start the patient journey. So the portal only allows us to send one type of a questionnaire. But we have like 10 doctors, so all clinicians. We have a physio who I've learned so much from, but her questionnaire is different to mine. So until we actually have technology that is purpose-built to the practice rather than having the reverse, which we are often doing. We are actually trying to tweak what we have to see how we can make our workflow fit into that. There has to be some individualization of capabilities or flexibility in the technology to be able to provide individualized practice support. There is an example where it does work well. We get very good feedback from the women. They're like, oh, thank you for not communicating through me. Like, for example, with my husband, had a cardiac journey, the cardiologist was asking how this other person, what report this was and this, that, and what did the other person in the MDT feel? So there is that centralization of care. There is that capability for all the clinicians to read the notes. 
But the vulnerability there is the, the economic angle because almost a number of our tenanted clinicians are hub and spoke model. So they're busy in another tertiary unit or they're busy somewhere else and they're giving us a slice of their pie, if I might put it that way. And so they're obviously not keen to pay another full software economic cost in various practices that they may go to. So I think we've got to think through that fiscal lens as well, that how do we create collaborative platforms? Because let's face it, collaborative care is the future. We need to learn to respect other specialties, like, for example, allied health, like, for example, midwifery and nursing care, and actually give them true value that they bring to the equation in addition to the medical workforce. And the only way we can do that is by having the foundation technology so perfect so that it, I always wanted to work like a well-oiled machine. Yeah. So meeting the needs of the various clinicians, we try to do, but there is room for improvement. And then having a purpose-built MDT-based software and also based solutions. And then thirdly, what we've said previously, interoperability. Oh my goodness, if things just talk to each other, that would be so bored. So if you look behind, <laughs> behind me, there are actually three screens in the room. So because we're so, so massive on patient engagement. So even, for example, behind me with a colposcopy chair, I would say to women, would you like to see a cervix when I'm doing a colposcopy? And majority are like, oh my God, I've never been asked that before. Yes, I would like to see my cervix. And if you are like, you know, your job, no, 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 turn the screen away. So which is fine. And we respect what that person's vision are. But you'd be surprised how many women want to know about their bodies, how many of them go into the portal and read all the information, the homework, as we probably call it, read it before their next visit. And how much less of Dr. Google I have to manage because they are coming to me with very mature questions that they've read evidence-based information. So it really has changed our workflow completely, but I would be lying if I said it works perfectly. Yeah. The Talking Health Tech podcast has evolved a lot over the years, all based on audience feedback. Now I need your help. Yes, you to shape the future of this show. Between now and the end of June, we're running our biggest campaign to date in order to understand what makes the global healthcare ecosystem tick. Last time we ran our Talking Health Tech audience survey, we learnt 40% of our audience are clinicians, 77% of our audience tune in for professional development and market awareness, 8% of people listen to Talking Health Tech for competitor profiling, and only 2% of people listen to the podcast to fall asleep. And this time around, I can't wait to find out about your preferences for audio versus video content, which topics we should dive into more, preferences for hosts and formats and geographical reach and so much more. And don't worry, we'll be sharing all the insights once all the responses are collected as well. So if you're a supporter of Talking Health Tech and you can spare five or 10 minutes, please complete our 2024 audience survey. And to say thanks for your input, everyone who completes the survey goes into the draw to win a share of $1,000 worth of credits towards THT Plus membership. Go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey or the links in the show notes of this episode as well. Well, I think, Pete, that kind of an interesting point you raised to that because, Pete, we were talking before about, and you mentioned it, the biggest thing you've seen in these specialty clinics is that they have unique workflows, right? It's all about workflow 
And we've all heard the story of, but I'm special and that I've been doing this for 10 years and Karen taught me this seven years ago. So this is why we do it in the clinic and things like that. But as a software vendor, if I get you to put your kind of solutions hat on, it's actually tricky, isn't it? To get the balance right between having a software that's really convoluted and has so many different configs because we're trying to cater for everyone's individual needs versus the practices probably having a bit more of a think about how they can change and adapt their workflow to work with the technology solution as well. So talk to us about your experience and some different examples of how you've seen that kind of come up and how it's potentially been addressed. Sure. Look, I could riff on this for a long time, so I'll try and be purposeful. I'll use my example in the skin cancer space where working with clinicians, we've got this solution that you talk about you lead from the front and talk about how AI is going to transform how you do a consult and shave off a minute or two here and there because the AI will find the lesion and map it straight to the body. And that sounds really cool to me because I'm like, oh, and from it from an investor point of view, looking to invest in technology, you just said AI. So that sounds really good. In speaking with a lot of clinicians who do skin checks, and as Adam's pointed out, the biggest driver for GPs wanting to use the Derm engine in the early days and probably still today wasn't about the AI and the fancy technology. That's fun and interesting, and they'll keep an eye on that. But in the end, the biggest driver was that if it connects to my practice management system and allows me to, when I open up best practice, then a patient record's created in Derm Engine, and then I can see the patient. And then if I can send back that back the other way, because my practice management system is the source of truth, then that's great. But what I also found was really interesting too, is, and there's some of the, who aren't fully familiar with the GP space or the creating solutions, you need to make sure you're thinking about from the clinical perspective and then the administration perspective, because if you're trying to solve both of these issues at the same time, they're quite different. So for us, when we were creating solutions for clinicians, I was speaking more with practice managers, not about the data or anything, because they didn't need to see any of the data that comes out of a consult in the, because for, there was no billing elements of what we did for Derm Engine. But if you were a solution that's trying to send billing info, then you need to do that. So all my conversations with practice managers were more about people stuff, about you're going into a clinic and saying, who's the advocate? Who's going to really enjoy using this? And think it's the most tech savvy one. And, but then you go and speak to the most tech savvy clinician, they've probably researched a few things and created these really bizarre solutions that they're just so welded to right now. And so if anything, for me, when I was helping selling to clinics to get them to use software, I would speak to every clinician in the room. And usually it's the one that just isn't so focused and done there because I remember speaking to one clinician and I'm like, show me how you do a skin check today. And because all the taking images was really important. And for them, they didn't have anything that then would allow them to neatly sort all their images and look back historically at a patient in best practice or the practice management system at the time, because it's all consult-based as opposed to lesion-based. So then what they do, they'd have their DSLR camera with their attachment, take the images, and he's like, so I'll show you my workflow. I've got it down pat, and I've got my images taken, and then I take the SD card out, I plug it into the computer, I load them into PowerPoint, and I create a PowerPoint presentation for that patient, and then I PDF that PowerPoint presentation, and I save it into best practice. And I'm like, that sounds ridiculous. And then I showed him the workflow for Derm Engine. He's like, I'm not used to it. That takes longer for me to do than the workflow that I just showed you with my PowerPoint presentation. That makes no logical sense. But then when you're there with a the patient and the clinician's been doing that for five years, and so some of it out to an admin person and got that down. So it's just not as simple as what it sounds like on the front. And you can laugh about it. And all that. But in the end, patients love the service that they were receiving from the clinician and all of that, but surely it was, it could be more efficient. It's just not as simple as making all the data kind of swoosh seamlessly together. Yeah. 
That's a really great example. And I think we've touched on a couple of really exciting things today, um, especially clinics, clinicians wanting to specialise because they're passionate. I think patients are driving that as well. They want to go to areas of specialty. We've talked about the fact that these clinics are different and need technology to support those differences. We're not quite meeting their needs from a technology perspective at the moment, but there's two kind of components to that. There's the overall interoperability component, which we know it's being talked about a lot at the moment about sharing information and sharing data, and I'm very confident that's coming, but they're still addressing those workflows and still getting the practices to understand which solutions suit their needs, which solutions are going to assist them and assist their patients. So I guess that kind of leads me to my next question. Do you guys engage with your software providers? How do you provide feedback and how do you think clinicians can drive these changes in industry? So Adam, I'll start with you. Do you engage with your software providers? Do you provide feedback? Do you think that it's clear enough that you can do so? Do you think clinicians do have buy-in and input into driving some of the changes in these products? A very good question. And I guess it would depend upon the software being used. I'm a bit self-serve because my company is a BP partner. So we do interface with ourselves and we do get good two-way communication with BP. But I can imagine if you're a non-technical doctor or clinician or nurse or health worker, how would you perceive your voice and who would you even go to make your mm-hmm. needs heard? And it's a tricky question. And I imagine if that particular person is having that problem, there's probably mm-hmm. dozens of other people having the same problem. Just those people don't have a united voice or a place to connect and speak to say, mm-hmm. oh, our problem is X, Y, and Z. How can we collaborate and work up and pitch a solution to say best practice or to the hospital software or wherever it might be? I think that collaboration of clinicians probably is really important to start perhaps a momentum to so that the maybe external vendors, entrepreneurs, and think, oh, that's a cool idea. We can solve that problem because we've got the resources and skill set to do that. Yeah. I think it probably starts with the clinicians maybe banding together to become a unified voice for that. And I think yeah. I probably comes back to when Flat was talking about her clinic is that he has individual needs in her clinic, but I imagine there's going to be clinics with similar, perhaps not mm-hmm. identical problems, but similar things that could be broader costs. And if there was a collection of collaborative of clinics that could talk about their workflow issues, if someone's already got a great solution in Queensland, want to bring it down to Victoria, for example, like I think it'd be a great way to sort of bring, increase collaboration first, and then maybe not look to the clinicians like people talking about for the solution, because PowerPoint's not a great way to store medical records, <laughs> but maybe then they create the problem or define the problem and then collaboratively work through the solution together. And that would probably help define is there a market? Is there enough money involved to actually justify a solution for that? Yeah. And what about yourself? You've talked about the fact that you do have these problems in your practice. You've got workflow issues. You have different products and you're really trying to service not only your staff, but your patient base. How do you engage with your vendors? Have you engaged? Do you feel that there's an open door? Like, How do we solve these problems together? Yeah, I think it's really important to have solutions that have everyone at the table. And what we have done in our practice, first of all, is we have embarked on a project that we call BNEC because my name because she felt that bees are just really organized creatures and then they produce nectar and they also nect I thought was from connect. That was my bit. I thought that was very clever to use the nect part. But anyway, so what we've tried to do is map out our workflow. 
And invariably, most of our pain points come back to where the gaps in the software are, that where we feel that those could be improvised. And it's really good that BP has a specialist and a GP specialist and non-GP specialist arm, but not all software is offered that. So the first deal breaker, I think, for multidisciplinary care that I have found is that a number of that care is still compartmentalized that we have primary care in a different silo and then non-GP care in another silo and they don't have purpose-built solutions for them. For example, just an example, our software currently, which actually I think to some degree does support the GP, but not as well as we would like it to. For example, something as simple as immunization, we have a manual workflow with communication with AIR, which really to me is such a basic concept that should be integral to the software. But because it's more geared towards non-GP specialists, that is on their roadmap, but not high on their roadmap. But for us, it's a problem because when we give an immunization, we don't want to send the pigeon to let someone know that we've done that. We wanted to seamlessly offer us that service. Again, similarly, in my search, I found another very big software in the space of non-GP specialists, medical specialists, doesn't even allow us to bill for MBS numbers for GPs. So that obviously is a deal breaker. You can't have a GP in the room and then say, you go get your own software if you're trying to build a true integrated model of care. So I think that we have to think. And then for me personally, I am very partial to cloud-based systems. I've enjoyed the part of an app on my phone. I've enjoyed being in theatre to be able to take a picture, very easily get access to the woman. I personally don't want to log into servers. So then that again is a deal breaker for me personally because that's one thing that might have very good options available, but they're not as efficient cloud options as I would like. So at every point, I felt I was making a Rubik's Cube, but there are a few missing pieces and I just can't get that perfect Rubik's Cube at the moment. But in response to your question of engaging with the vendor, we were lucky at the beginning that we did get quite a lot of support. So a lot of our systems were set up which are my own personal workflow. And I use the dictation dragon. I use things that help me save time and that's all improves my workflow. But I think the appetite for MDT is increasing, but slowly. I think it is very much a too hard basket sometimes for this kind of opportunity. And so I keep hearing, oh, it's on the roadmap. It's on the roadmap. That's one thing I've learned roadmap to means maybe in the next few years. Yes, sorry to ramble, but that was great. And and I think that it still has to be thought through as a small business, even though we're providing a service, it's a passion, it's an educational, there's so many authentic arms to our practice. At the end of the day, it's still a small business. So the fiscal end is also important to get right. And for empty this chest, especially with the anxiety around payroll tax from the state government. Oh, yeah. so critical to have you know, clinicians who are true contractors to come across as that and not to have the integration now show any sort of faults that they are now employees when they're not employees. That's another thing that the software companies, I think, really need to rise to that occasion and partner with us to say, look, these are tenanted clinicians. How can they have that presence all along their journey, not only their physical journey, but their clinical workflow. The workflow has to reflect that. 
Workflow is a, a big thing that keeps coming up, doesn't it? Pete, I've actually just got a question for you as well. Technology is one component of this kind of puzzle, but in your experience, how do we get practices using the technology? What's the carrot? How do we get practices changing and adopting to things like e-prescriptions, some of the software that you've rolled out in your past and actually taking advantage of these products that actually will change their workflows and make them more efficient and hopefully improve health outcomes to their patients as well? Yeah, look, I think that's the million dollar question at times from a, from a vendor's perspective and creating a good product in the first place is probably a good start. Secondly <laughs> is, but understand what is a good product, understanding what people want and what they use it for. And it comes back, I think, to when we talk about the users of the technology, if I see Liz, as, and that's what you mentioned before, Talat, in terms of MDTs, multidisciplinary teams, but also, as Liz has pointed out too, there's nurses and there's, in the skin cancer space, melanographers or trains or people who are taking images or doing investigations that are all supporting the process. So I think that from a technologies perspective, maybe perhaps not trying to answer your question, not trying to boil the ocean in creating this whole sweeping solution that might you can justify the investment in this because it's going to increase the amount of patients you have or allow you to do many more consults that you wouldn't have otherwise been able to do. Maybe it's just one component of that workflow that you can make a lot better. And you know that from a clinician's point of view, they might do that a number of times. And in a lot of these specialty GP scenarios, it comes back to what Adam mentioned too, particularly with the work he's doing in Aboriginal communities, but also occupational medicine. There's so much freaking paperwork to do. And that half the time, a technology solution, if it can just streamline a lot of that, that's valuable. And it's not about getting involved in the clinical workflow. It's just meeting the needs of what needs to get done in the first place. I think understanding the why of why the console gets done, yes, to deliver good patient outcomes, but if they're doing occupational medicine or something that's a little bit out of the ordinary other than your usual kind of standard bulk billing GP clinics, it's probably because they're either super the clinician's super passionate about doing it or very talented at doing it, or there's a good financial reason why they need to do it. But financially, it's no good for a clinic to do a consult that's going to take the doctor seven minutes of it with a patient, but then 45 minutes afterwards, foofing around, sending faxes and filling out forms and writing things out. They're still in the airline industry. You still have to write out like forms on a thing to get like medical clearances onto plane. And there's all these other areas that is just understanding where in that big workflow, like where can you really niche down in? That's what I think is there's so many more problems to solve that people don't even know unless you actually get in there and try and understand it. Yeah. So just to summarize, really, it's all about value props understanding the why, how can it solve a problem, how can it work for your practice, and then really that education piece to increase adoption. I'm really conscious of time. I just want to ask you guys one more question. Technology wish list, if you could solve something now within your practice, what would it be and what would it mean to your clinic? And I'm talking about interoperability, I'm talking about products, I'm talking about services. What's the biggest pain point in your clinic at the moment from a technology perspective? What would be your wish list, whether that's through government, a vendor or whatever? What would make the biggest difference in your clinic? Adam, I'll start with you. I think for me, the biggest thing, if I could, one of the questions is on the actual forum, actually put it on there, similar sort of note, if I'm referring someone off to an external hospital, external specialist, it's literally fire and forget. Hope for the best, fingers crossed, they get an appointment, Otherwise, I'm sitting there not sleeping at night worrying that person's cancer is not being treated. I'm sitting there worrying, making phone calls, and 
that's chewing up hours of my time when it should just be an automated, yep, Adam got the referral, booked in to see Barry on Tuesday the 4th and at 4 p.m., and we'll, check, we'll make sure he turns up. Because invariably what happens with hospital referrals, oh, Barry didn't turn up his appointment, Adam, you better chase it up. No, I've handed the issue to you to take care of, your problem, but no, they pass it back to the GP to sort out. That's a nightmare. And then foot to that, if I give Pete here, uh, Pete, can you go organize this CT scan for me? And Pete gets his life busy with his fifth or eighth trial and holidays and stuff. It doesn't get the CT scan done. And I'm sitting there not sleeping at night worrying, why, why hasn't Pete got his CT scan done? And I think software that automates and gets Pete's own the health issue, because it's Pete's health, not mine. He should own that health issue. The software should ping Pete. Are you going to get the CT scan done, Pete? And then Pete can say finally, no, nah, I've moved to New Zealand. I'll get it followed up there. But that should be all automated. It shouldn't rely on me, the GP, to be faffing around with recalls, reminders, results, and my own panic and anxiety about patient outcomes that I have to then chop hours of my time making this patient ongoing care manage well and the investigations manage well. It should be all automated. Yeah. Funnily enough, I was chatting to a GP yesterday who told me a funny story that he needed to refer a patient into the hospital and he spent hours trying to find out how to refer them and in the end got his nurse to print a letter and fax it. And then on the flip side, he didn't receive the discharge summary. But luckily enough, the patient's wife had taken a photo of the discharge summary at the hospital and text that photo to the clinician. So it's really fun. And we have all this technology, we have all this stuff happening and we talk about interoperability and all these cool things, but we're still not quite there with some of the basic things. So I think getting some of those things right, Adam, the referral management out, the comms within that kind of community health setting and getting the patient to have better access to their clinical information and take more ownership is really important. So to let over to you quickly, I'm conscious of time. Pete's going to be shaking his head at me in a second, but what's your wish list item? What would make your life easier? Sure. I think you. Well, I think yeah. I want us to look through the lens of the woman or the person we're caring for and that we have a seamless journey. So she starts from home, she sees her GP, she sees either the public gynecology clinic or the antenatal clinic and all the private rooms. She goes to the hospital and that interface with the hospital really needs to be nailed back and forth. And then she goes back home. So that virtual and for that hybrid model of care just needs interoperability at every step. So then the information flows seamlessly and that we're not spending, we're not doing Sherlock Holmes. We want to be clinicians. We don't want to be Sherlock Holmes. That's not our job. Yeah. Another quote from something I went to yesterday, we've got fantastic doctors in Australia. We're extremely lucky. We have a great medical system, but unfortunately at the moment it is that sharing of information and that healthcare information that's really limiting their ability to provide the best patient care. Still a bit of work to do in that area. And Pete, last thing from you, you see it all. You're the man about, you know, you see everything happening in industry. What do you think is one of the most important things that we need to fix to really help our clinicians? Oh, look, I think what I love about this conversation just winds up. Firstly, it sets up so many good conversations for the rest of the day that we've got. And I've seen in the chat too that it's resonated with a lot that are, are attending either from a patient's perspective, research, clinicians and everything. I think the most important thing for us to do is just continue to understand what problem we're trying to solve. And speaking with clinicians, if you're creating software for a GP or especially GP, which is the topic of this conversation, then do it for a particular one, do things that are not scalable and then grow from there. And we can go into more in future sessions here about how then to scale it. But I think if you can just understand the problem that you're trying to solve in the first place and 
do it on a small scale and build from there. That's probably where we'll go. But we're going to have to wrap up this one. Because, okay. uh, we've got so many more conversations to come. Look, Adam, Jess, Talat, I appreciate you coming on during your busy schedules to talk more and look forward to hearing more from you in the chat in the Hobbin platform. Thanks so much. Thank you, Adam. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for sticking around to the end of this episode. If you made it this far, you're the perfect person that I want to hear from. Our THT Plus audience survey is now open until the end of June, and I personally read every submission. In fact, if you leave a comment in the survey that you heard this promotion in a podcast episode, I promise I'll reply directly to you by email with a personal note of thanks. And I'll even buy you a coffee next time I see you in person. It's pretty easy. Just go to talkinghealthtech.com slash survey and have your say. For more content and community about technology and healthcare, visit talkinghealthtech.com.